1: Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you very much for joining us. Today I'll be speaking with Jason Josephson Storm about his fascinating new book called The Myth of Disenchantment, Magic, Modernity, and the Birth of the Human Sciences. It was published this year by the University of Chicago Press. The book tackles the commonly held belief that modernity produces disenchantment. With the rise of science and scientific reasoning, so the traditional argument suggests, beliefs in spirits, myths, and magic fall away. The icy slopes of logic do not welcome enchantments. Yet, as the myth of disenchantment illustrates, this narrative is wrong. Some of the most persuasive and articulate champions of the Enlightenment were themselves enthralled with enchantments. The classic example is, of course, Isaac Newton, who was both natural philosopher and alchemist, But more surprisingly, some of the logical positivists of the Vienna School were also interested in and believed in the paranormal. What Josephson Storm argues is, as he puts it, we should be less surprised than we usually are to find scientists of all stripes keeping company with magicians. Disenchantment is the myth of modernity. To argue this, he provides a rereading of Western thought from modernity's alleged origins in 17th century Europe up to the Vienna School in the 20th century. Each chapter explores how a particular discipline, including philosophy, folklore studies, sociology, religious studies, and psychoanalysis, interacted with the occult and the mystical. He also shows how some of those disciplines helped cultivate and spread the myth of disenchantment. It is an impressive book that utilizes archives from across Europe and uses texts in many languages, and it is filled with interesting and sometimes shocking stories and rich with challenging and persuasive arguments. It tracks the history of the human sciences, so scholars from across the human sciences would benefit greatly from reading The Myth of Disenchantment. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here with Jason Josephson-Storm to talk about his new book, The Myth of Disenchantment. Welcome to the show, Jason.
0: Hey, it's great to be here.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, You weave together a a really wonderful assortment of surprising and sometimes strange actors to tell a a really compelling and interesting story about modernity and the human sciences. Um, So thank you for writing it, firstly. Yeah, Um, thanks. So the first question that I have for you is, uh, how did you... Come to
0: religious studies? Oh, how, yeah. Um, yeah, how did I come to religious studies? Um, I guess I came to religious studies already as an undergraduate. And at the time, um, when I went to undergrad, I was pretty open at what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do um, creative stuff. I was in a rock band and playing a lot of music, uh, or if I wanted to do something more scholarly. And um, for me, I started as a, I ended up becoming like a film major first. And I was shooting music videos with a band and uh, just trying to sort of write screenplays. I wanted to be a film screenplay writer, but I was looking for like content for my screenplays. And um, I started I decided just sort of on a whim to take an intro theory and method course in uh, religious studies uh, at Amherst. But taught by this old guy named Jack Pemberton, the third, who was some kind of weird relic from a weird like sort of colonial era. Uh, version of anthropology. But the course was really fabulous. And the issues really, really struck me. The sort of methodological or theoretical issues are really, um, I really, found really uh, important and influential. And then I sort of stayed in religious studies. I was trying to decide whether I want to be in religious studies or philosophy. But the stuff I was most interested in was sort of being exiled from philosophy uh, at that time. So it was like, Mostly what I'm thinking of is like Asian philosophy wasn't taken seriously as philosophy. And I was really interested in Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism. And so, um, that stuff. So in order to study that stuff, I, I had to really be a, focusing on a religion major. And then along the way, I was also interested in sort of continental philosophy. And that, although there was some of that being allowed into the philosophy programs, uh, where I was an undergrad, um, there just wasn't much. And so, those two sort of excluded forms of philosophy sort of drew me to religious studies, really. Um, And then I just sort of it took off. I mean, I got it it became uh, I thought it it was sort of a good catch all discipline that let me do a little bit of history, a little bit of anthropology. I love languages. I've uh, been loving, you know, I, I grew up bilingual and I just love to do different kinds of language stuff. So, you know, religious studies let me bring these sort of philosophical, anthropological, historical and philological things all in this one sort of crystallized knot. And then the first thing I sort of did as a major project was to challenge the category religion. So I I don't know. It's like I have a weird relationship to it, but I I definitely it's a it's a wonderful sort of disciplinary, pan disciplinary intersection.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, I think all of that comes through in your book. It's uh, it's an eclectic book and uh, clearly your background is extremely eclectic. I'm really curious how how you reached this book. What, What exactly led you to writing about the history of modernity and the human sciences, because this is extremely different from your your previous work on sort of like Japanese history and religion.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same time period and similar methodological issues, but it's really different in its geography. Um, I came to it, like I was actually in Japan. I talk about this a little at the beginning of the monograph, but um, I was in Japan at a uh, tattoo parlor called Hada Zanmai and getting some, basically some touch-ups done and some tattoos. And Um, when, uh, it was in March of 2011 and that was when the, uh, Tohoku, uh, quake and tsunami happened. And it was really intense to be in the tattoo parlor where there's this, you know, a lot of sort of tragic history unfolding, although we didn't know at the time that it was tragic, but, um, you know, the tattooing got interrupted, the television came on and it was like showing video footage of waves and stuff like that. And this was before we knew that there were any casualties and there are some earthquakes are pretty common in Japan, but everybody stopped tattooing and we kind of all, uh, sort of, sat around looking at the television screen and we started just sort of talking about different stuff. And one of the, uh, uh, folks there asked me about, uh, my research or what I was doing in Japan. And I told him about this project I was researching at the time on, uh, called, um, death and resurrection, shifting boundaries between the living and the dead in 19th and 20th century Japan. And at the time I was trying to sort of push back against the notion that, um, Japanese modernity meant disenchantment. But like, when I explained my project to the to, to the room, uh, people first, you know, chimed in and talked about different kinds of protective talismans they had or faith healing experiences they had or, or, or visions, or even we talked a little bit about ghosts, but this one kind of Western guy in the room who I, I interpreted as coming from somewhere in Scandinavia, and he like basically, um, said, well, of course, you know, the Japanese people in the room have had these experiences because Japan is the mystic Orient. And, you know, of course, uh, magic never died in, in Japan, but magic died in the West was his contention. And I just knew this was wrong. And I, and I began to be, I was really suspicious of that narrative um, in general. Uh, in part, um, I, I knew that many Americans and Europeans believed in ghosts and in uh, uh, protective icons and talismans, And... So right after that happened, I ended up leaving Japan in part because the situation was really not good for for research, and um, and I ended up in Germany, and I was kind of going and I wanted to work on my German in part, so I was going back through the canon of European thought, particularly German uh, sort of social sciences, human sciences, and philosophy, trying to you know really enjoying marinating in the original language. And the thing that kept coming up, that sort of presented itself to me over and over and over again was the uh, things about ghosts and theosophy and the occult. They kept returning inside the social theorists that I was reading. And so I I really um, became kind of uh, decided to really, you know, reconceive the project. And instead of focusing uh, on Japan, because I felt like that would just reinforce mystical Asia, I decided instead to kind of look at America and Europe to the kind of the eyes of an outsider, with the same kind of gaze that is often leveled at non-Europeans, um, and, and then uh, sort of explore the evidence for enchantment in contemporary Europe and North America. Um, and when I did that, the thing that struck me was, uh, there's a lot of evidence I rehearsed at the beginning of this book, but sort of sociological evidence that suggests that a lot of people today uh, believe in um, spirits and ghosts and angels, uh, something like um, you know, 80% of Americans believe in angels and like 70% believe in demonic possession and people, you know, something like 75% of Americans believe in some form of the paranormal. So all this makes it look like the narrative of disenchantment, as we've told ourselves, doesn't really apply in contemporary America. And I look at similar data in Western Europe. And so um, and in, so having seen the way that that narrative. Uh, didn't hold up in the present, I began to worry about how it held up in the moments that it was theorized. And when you trace the story about modernity as disenchantment back through the archive, it's it's easy to show that it originated mostly in the 19th century and mostly in Germany, France, and Great Britain. But this is the same period in which all three countries were experiencing their own occult revivals. So spiritualism, table turning, and theosophy was in the lives of the various theorists at the very moment when this notion of modernity as rupture, uh, with this notion of modernity as disenchantment was itself being first articulated. And so part of the project went meant to go back into the archive to look at letters, to look at diaries and try and see how much these uh, kind of beliefs uh, in psychic powers, magic astrologer, what have you entered into the lives of these canonical theorists. And I was really surprised how much I could dig up, um, you know, basically looking at archives in Germany, Austria, France and England. Uh, so, yeah, that's sort of how the project um, sort of took shape. And then at that point, by the time I was done, there was way too much uh, material even on the European stuff for me to fit in one book. So I had a, you know, the Japan stuff fell by the wayside.
1: Yeah. Wow. So you so you begin the book with a really interesting and surprising episode uh, involving the Curies, uh, Marie and Pierre Curie, the, yeah. you know, I think you call them paragons of science, participating in a seance. Can you yeah. uh, uh, narrate that scene and tease out what uh, the presence and participation of the paragons of science in a seance have for the, the rest of your book and your overall argument?
0: Sure. So, um, so to kind of re- retread it from, from memory a little bit. Um, so basically the interesting thing is that in early, uh, 20th century, so uh, like right around 1906, 1907, uh, the, uh, Curie's, um, uh, particularly, uh, Marie Curie, uh, but, but also, um, her husband, we um, were involved in psychical research. And in particular, they were, uh, and not just them, actually, a bunch of the sort of defining figures of the physics establishment of early 20th century France, people who would go on to win Nobel Prizes, um, uh, philosophers, physicists, uh, and even doctors, were all really interested in a particular uh, psychic medium or spirit medium, an Italian woman named Usapia Palladino. And so, not just the Curies, but like, uh, you know, people like Joubert um, Ballet and um, Alfred uh, de Gramont and uh, people and uh, Charles Richet and Henri Bergson all were doing these seances, and they were trying to figure out if um, uh, Palladino had real powers. And Mary Curie became convinced ultimately that 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 this uh, particular spirit medium did. And what what struck me, uh, uh, and the reason I sort of used it to, as an, uh to begin the book is that there's this sort of One of the most widespread myths uh, in in the history of science is the notion that uh, spirits give way to a law like cosmology, uh, that basically mechanism will displace vitalism, and in fact, that's the grand trajectory of science. And what I wanted to show was that already at the beginning, I wanted to cast some doubt in this because I'm not trying to, to either use uh, the, the authority of the Curies to promote belief in, uh, in, in spirit mediums, but, nor am I trying to denigrate them. But I'm just trying to say that this notion that seance and science are totally separated doesn't hold and didn't hold for much, much of, uh, of um, history of the last uh, 200 or 300 years. I mean, we, um, so in this respect, the fact that, you know, um, uh, Marie Curie came to believe in the powers of a psychic medium. It's not that unusual, actually. Like, not only did she think that they were, that the psychic medium was real, but, you know, we can, people like William James, the famous pioneering uh, psychologist, also believed in the powers of this particular, uh, uh, medium. And, and so what I wanted to do was, was, uh, show that, um, you know, Physics and spirits, two worlds that are normally seen as separate, or off, often uh, came to overlap. And this belief in spirit phenomena was not sort of some kind of archaicism left over from the Middle Ages, but was part of this boom in new kinds of, let's say, enchantments that emerge in modernity. So new ways of thinking about the invisible world that involved belief in psychic powers, but also involved in things that, in belief in things that we you know might uh, uh, ground more seriously, like uh, x-rays and radium. And that this was part of the same conversation in a particular moment. So... Uh, uh, so part of it was that I wanted to show a kind of uh, notion that within modernity and I put the word modernity in quotes, magic keeps reemerging or belief in spirits and an animated cosmos kind of continues to reappear. And so uh, in the introduction, I kind of argue and, and hereby the reference to Bruno Latour, that it, it, there's a significant way in which we have never been disenchanted mm-hmm. and then. Uh, For for people who already might suspect that we haven't been disenchanted, I then want to argue for how this myth of disenchantment, how this notion that modernity means necessarily disenchantment emerged and came to function uh, as a kind of guiding narrative or or regulative ideal.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I really uh, enjoyed the riff on the Latourian, uh, we've never been modern. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, So the the next question that I wanted to ask that also comes from your introduction is one about methodology or your approach. And so you know, everyone knows about reflexive sociology and it's, uh, you know, it's a a standard way of doing things in sociology today. But you introduce a new approach that you call reflexive religious studies. Um, What do you mean by that? And uh, why does it matter?
0: So so in a way, I'm inspired by some version of the reflexive sociology literature, uh, particularly uh, thinkers like Bourdieu. But um, what I'm interested in, so for me, the interesting Feature about reflective sociology for those listeners, particularly in other disciplines, um, or the aspect of reflexive sociology that interested me, um, uh, is that uh, sociology has this interesting problem, which is that uh, it starts to, there, there has to, there, once you start to note that the act of doing sociology itself transforms a society. In other words, once you start to show that, um, for example, the way that you describe categories of race on surveys that you make people take changes their orientation and their own sense of themselves as inhabiting categories, you start to have this second problem, which is that sociology itself starts to have an impact on the social field. And you can see this both in the way that sociology gets involved in making government policy but also in the way in which sociology starts to impact social identity. So what I wanted to do was articulate a similar kind of move for religious studies, a kind of uh, to, to emphasize the way in which the study of religion has its own reverberations on the religious field. And, uh, and it becomes a it's a two directional kind of reverberation. We we often want to imagine that um, the academy is segregated from the field, or that you know it has a it has a one directional influence. But one of the things that I want to emphasize is the way that there's a back and forth, a kind of reverberations. Uh, and this this kind of feedback loop between the study of religion or the academics of religion, not just in religion departments, but in general, and the religious field, um, you know, means that like trends in the, in in the religious world have their impact on religious studies, uh, and religious studies has its impact on trends. So for example spiritualism uh, being born in the 19th century when religious studies was coming to make its own uh, definitional identity as a subdiscipline was huge, both in the way that spiritualists came to think of themselves, relying on the authority of academic experts, but also ways that scholars themselves often practicing or engaging with spiritualism changed the way they read their own history. So like the reconstruction of Gnosticism in uh, early biblical studies was heavily impacted by spiritualism and theosophy, uh, which were booming at the same moment. So to trace this kind of back and forth, I wanted to encourage a, a model I'm describing as reflexive religious studies, and it, which which does which, which traces some of that. Um, and then also it's reflexive, not only not primarily on the autobiographical level, it's not just about situating you and your research, which is how we've tried to do reflexivity in religious studies for the most part before, but looking at it on a disciplinary looking level, looking at how, uh, the discipline, uh, looks how the study of religion constructs and, uh, and, and how, uh, uh, things like the narrative of disenchantment themselves start to have effects they start to either enchant or disenchant. But it then looks at kind of the reverberations of the study of religion on the field, uh, the the larger religious field as well. Yeah,
1: Great. Okay, so on to the next chapter, uh, chapter one called Enchanted Postmodernity. Uh, And in this one, you sort of lay out the fields of uh, contemporary European and American superstitions of uh, all sorts, and, uh, you know, one feature of the the myth of modernity that we tell ourselves is that um, the West has cast aside its superstitions, whereas the global South still holds on to their superstitions. Um, and, uh, you know, within the social sciences, a lot of the global South superstitions have been studied uh, quite a lot. I mean, you know, today we, we know about um, – from, from your uh, chapter, uh, you talk about when, um, how, you know, certain Vietnamese – people will appease divinities with cans of Pepsi, for instance. Um, and yet these like modern twists on uh, seemingly traditional superstitions um, seem normal in the global South. But uh, you make the case, and you've already alluded to it a bit, that Europe and the United States are superstitious as well. Um, and it's a part of the myth that uh, uh, that we tell ourselves. Can you just say a little bit more about um, contemporary uh, Western enchantments?
0: yeah I mean, I tend to avoid the word superstition as it's a little bit pejorative, but I'll put it in a different kind of a way, which is that um but I, but I think I can get it really the the cusp of what you're pointing at, yeah, I mean, I think we have this story about the West as rational and the other as irrational that People in the social sciences have been telling for a long time, you know, and across the humanities, and you know, part of this is that it's the academic version of a mystic Asia trope. You know, like the idea is that sometimes, but it's not just, you know, it's not just uh, East Asia, but it's also the global South. So, uh, you know, so people look at developing countries, etc. And there've been a lot of anthropological studies. What seems to fascinate anthropologists is often the uh, kinds of so-called bizarre beliefs that so-called uh, primitive peoples uh, believed. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, anthropologists have accumulated a lot of evidence for things like about, you know, magical charms in, uh, Japan or clairvoyant Brazilian spirit surgeons, or like, you know, practitioners of Haitian voodoo or, you know, possessed, uh, Malaysian factory workers or what have you. But, uh, what, what it turns out is that a, a lot of the things that we think of as exclusive, uh, to the rest of the world outside the West, um, and and we think of the West as different, as rational and material. It just doesn't it doesn't work. That separation, that binary bifurcation, doesn't work. There's been some great uh, work also showing already in studies outside of uh, Europe and Asia, looking at how modernity produces its own enchantments. And I'm thinking of the work of of Jean and John Komaroff, uh about uh, 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 sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the uh, occult economies in sub-Saharan Africa. But they've noticed that like you know capitalism and witch belief go together in in and are amplified together in the South African case. So But so if we have all this evidence uh, and all this evidence for the kind of things like belief in spirits and and magic or or whatever outside uh, the West is often either taken as evidence for how India imperfectly modernized is the claim or how, you know, still backward some uh, people are, whatever. But it turns out like if you look at that, if you look at the same kind of data in Europe and you can find the same kind of data in Europe and America, you only have to go to like a co-op. To see like if I go to my local co-op, I see uh, posters about crystal healing and uh, astrology and, you can, and, and energy work. Uh, and, you know, and, and if you look at, um, you know, if you interview people, um, you know, you can see like, stuff about tarot reading. Uh, uh all over and if you look at our television shows and our movies we have people constantly uh overflowing with magic the world that, that is depicted and described so on a sort of on a basic sort of ethnographic level we can see the paranormal or belief in the paranormal all over the place you can you can trace it economically you can look at the fortune tellers for example in america and uh or or great britain um, and you can look at, you could look at the rise of, uh, crystal healing. It's big business. A lot of this stuff is detract capitalist, uh, uh, or, uh, uh, strains to it as well. And so, you know, it's not, so it's all over the place. Uh, and it's on our television shows, so-called reality television with, which often has, you know, ghostbuster ghost hunting in it in one way or another, or, uh, you can see people talking about guardian angels or celebrity psychics and the whole thing seems, to have, um, you know, it's disconnected from the standard narrative seculariz- of secularization. Some people looking at my book at first pass think that I'm just criticizing the secularization narrative, which has already been, in a way, attacked a lot. And we even have this uh, sort of mystifying term, the post secular. But what I want to note is that I'm not just looking at belief in religion as such. Uh, I- I'm not trying to argue that something particularly, you know, that Christian fundamentalism is on the way back or something, which was what, part of the main argument for the post secular uh, a decade or two ago. But what I'm noting is that a whole range of beliefs that we associate with, let's uh, I'll use that word, superstition, continue to be uh, but believed in and have a lot of cultural force um, in, in Europe and America, and they're disconnected from secularization, depending on how you measure sociologically, but even in countries like Norway, where church attendance is way down and you have many people who are um, no longer Identifying as christian you have roughly comparable levels of belief in ghosts and i look at the statistical evidence for this and you know it's it's the majority of people basically in in uh, both europe and in america who have some kind of paranormal belief so skeptics are the minority it's uh, in, in both of these countries uh, or you know across basically um the the countries that i surveyed in the introduction or in that chapter so what what that, that's striking to me is that the that the putative difference between the west and the rest doesn't hold and in fact Uh, In that respect, the narrative that European thinkers have told about Europe to justify either European colonial expansion or to bemoan the modernity in Europe just isn't an accurate story. It's like a myth. That Europeans have told about Europe that, that doesn't actually hold, and and it's not just that these things came back in the 60s, uh, as uh, a couple of people have, have who have observed this pattern have, have tried to argue. It's you can see it all the way through from the 19th century to the 20th century, and the beliefs specific beliefs change. Uh, you know, it's psychic powers where it was animal magnetism, or, or and then spirit forces before, but it's uh, the terminology might shift, and there are new enchantments emerging all the time. But it's not the case that we've experienced a grand trajectory of disenchantment. And so that's uh, the kind of work that I look at and do in that chapter is looking at the present, the enchanted present.
1: Yeah, I I mean, that chapter really reminded me of uh, my teenage years when I was just obsessed with the Eric von Daniken books, uh, like Trance of the Gods and stuff like that. Um, So uh, moving on to the the next chapter, um, which is it's called Revenge of the Magicians. um, And here you look at people such as Isaac Newton and Francis Bacon, who have long been associated with the origins of the Enlightenment and rationality. Um, But uh, really interestingly, you show how they were also fascinated with and uh, believed in uh, a variety of uh, enchantments, um, alchemy, magic. Um, And you even uh, suggest that they saw their uh, project, the Enlightenment project, as a divine science. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Francis Bacon and his own enchantments and what his beliefs and your other actors' beliefs say about modernity.
0: Yeah, great. So I'll take a step back and just explain why uh, I started the chronology uh, where I did. So uh, the other thing that my book is a big response to is Adorno and Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is a huge, an influential work in, in Frankfurt School Critical Theory. And they tell a particular story in which they use this phrase, uh, the disenchantment of the world, the Entzauberung der Welt. Uh, and they describe it, um, and and they describe enlightenment as leading to the disenchantment of the world. And they begin their narrative with Francis Bacon, who for them is like the central figure in the disenchantment of nature, basically. So part of what I wanted to do was go back into their own source. State. I mean, I'm a big fan of critical theory. I, I, you know, that's one of the areas in which I was trained. But uh, I, in this particular case, it, it doesn't fit the narrative that we've hung on these. These pe- people are supposed to be like the the uh, either the scapegoats or the heroes of disenchantment uh you know figures like Isaac Newton like Giordano Bruno like René Descartes uh like Francis Bacon and it, and it turns out that they don't fit the received uh story about them and so i start with bacon although i gesture at the other thinkers whose a called interest perhaps we know a little bit better uh like people know about Isaac Newton at this point for example but um but I, uh, you know, and I go through them a little bit, but then I focus in on Bacon. And the interesting thing is Francis Bacon is normally described as the father of modern science. Uh, he's supposed to be at the at the origin of the, the Enlightenment. Uh, Francis Bacon uh, gets attacked for supposedly saying knowledge is power, although I reread the I retranslate the Latin and have a different reading of that phrase. And uh, people but people from Adorno and Horkheimer to Ernst Kassir all blamed Bacon for uh, the disenchantment of nature in particular, for stripping nature of its occult forces. But if you actually read Bacon and if you read him more sophisticatedly, uh, you can, uh, in particular, if you read uh, works that are, you know, that, that aren't the like two works of Bacon that everybody reads or whatever, um, then what you can see is that he describes his project as magic. It's just literal. He says, and uh, I think I can I'll bring up the quote, uh, magic aims to recall natural philosophy, philosophy from a miscellany of speculation, speculation to a greatness of works which is exactly what he's doing with his project. He's, he's calling for magic. He's not trying to strip magic out of the world. He's trying to make magic less uh, secret. So, and, and, that, and that kind of phrasing occurs multiple times in texts like the De Augmentis. Um, he's calling for an anti-esoteric or anti-occult magic. So in that respect, to see him as a disingencer is wrong. But the second piece that's even more screwed up about Bacon's uh, posthumous reputation is that people think that he was stripping the, the nature of vital forces and they accuse him of, uh, you know, he describes, his a famous phrase of putting nature to the rack or whatever, torturing nature, which is a sad and depressing metaphor. And there's a whole line of critique on Bacon that blames him for that metaphor and for despiritualizing nature. But those two things go against each other. You can't torture a despiritualized spiritualized nature and actually if you look more sophisticatedly at, at different scraps of Bacon's writings, uh, uh, you can see, particularly letters and what have you, you can see that he actually described a nature that was full of vital forces. His nature was not a nature that had been stripped of magic, but one uh, 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 that, that was vibrant. And it was also a divine science, too. That's the other thing. This is something that historians uh, of the period w- w- know, and, and I'm not the first to discover this, but uh, Bacon um, described it was with a kind of radical Protestants, and, and he described science as the recovery of endemic knowledge for the end times. Uh, you know, this is Bacon's whole scientific project was a divine project, and it was one about reading nature for divine signs. Um, and then the piece of it that I think, uh, you know, people misread his, his phrase, uh, um, knowledge is power. But if you look at the full sentence in which the, the Latin scientia potestas est occurs, it, 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 it actually could, should be translated as God's power is knowledge. So what Bacon is talking about, you know, because we take that phrase out of context and, and what uh, and what Bacon is talking about is a kind of power uh, by which God comes to know the world. Um, were you know, uh, where in which, and and he wanted, he, he Bacon is also really interested in, in human knowledge being fallible and broken. And so when Adorno, it's really limited, uh, Bacon thinks that, that we're like wandering in a labyrinth of the world, uh, which God has given us some clues to, but it is otherwise this mystifying thing in the human mind he thinks is really screwed up. So when Adorno and Horkheimer accuse Bacon of thinking that the mind and the world have a happy match, that's their phrase, they're just wrong. It's not a good reading of Bacon. So Bacon... We, we keep having to push. Uh, historians of science like to talk about like the last magician. And the problem is that like we keep having to push the last magician later and later and later and later and later. Uh, you know, like people wanted to talk about Isaac Newton as the last magician or they've earlier talked about, you know, Giordano Bruno. But then we figured out Newton, you know, was an alchemist. We figured out Giordano Bruno was an alchemist. Uh, you know, we can keep telling that story all the way. From the 17th century to the 21st century, if we want to look at, you know, even just in the hard sciences, even if we want to look in physics or in, the, you know, we can look at the idea of a quantum new age, that quantum physics leads to new age belief. Um, that's that's in quantum physicists themselves. So, for example, uh, Wolfgang Pauli has his own quantum mysticism. Uh, various readings uh, uh, that Bohr authorized of the Copenhagen interpretation tipped that way. I mean, it's true that the lightweight pop culture version of, of quantum mysticism is a new thing, but there's a reason that Oppenheimer quotes the Bhagavad Gita, I've become death destroyer of worlds, when he dropped the atom bomb. It's because one of the ways that quantum physicists uh, and the cutting edge of physics in the 20th century, they look toward Eastern thought often to understand uh, the phenomena that they were encountering. And so what, what it turns out is even within the hard sciences, you frequently have these returns of enchantment or people who are believing in either different kinds of spiritualized or mystical versions of the cosmos or, or even kinds of spirits and spirit forces. So you have it even in physics. And then the, the problem for me then is, OK, well, if we've got it in the scientists, Well, maybe scientists are kind of a little weird and quirky and might not know uh, things that happen outside their area of expertise. You would think that social scientists wouldn't make this mistake. But actually, as I show, tracing tracing it through the history of the book, um, this, you know, you have both the notion that modernity is in disenchanted and enchantment entering the lives of social theorists as well. So but yeah, so that chapter, I start with Bacon, but I also look at the uh, at uh, Diderot and D'Alembert and the birth of the encyclopédie and how they gesture toward both the encyclopedia as a divine science and they describe a science of spirit. Uh, science of spirits as a positive kind of science, and they gesture toward natural magic. There's like, we, there's a whole generation of beating up the French, uh, philosophes for, uh, again, for, for, for being, for killing God or despiritualizing the world. And it turns out that's not what they were doing. They might have been against institutional churches. That's, that's definitely clear. They were anti clerical, uh, as all get out, but, they uh, often had a much messier relationship to things like alchemy, spirits and even theological knowledge. And they've been given credit for. And so part of what I do in that chapter is to recoup it uh, uh, again, not to justify it, but to complexify our notion of either scapegoats or heroes. If you're you know, if you're if you're a critique of modernity, you see these guys as. The, the place that things went wrong and, and they become scapegoats for all of the despiritualization of nature. And if you're a proponent, a whiggish historian of progress, you get the people celebrate these guys as the first truly rational people or whatever. But both of those are myths. I mean, if you look at uh, the whole range of, of figures in the, in the so-called Age of Enlightenment, um, they don't fit the received uh, image of them, especially if you go into their private lives. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so the, uh, the next chapter... Uh, chapter three, called the Myth of Absence, uh, it dives into the uh, late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century uh, German philosophical world, um, and it's it's here where we see a generation that starts to craft and cultivate the myth of a mythless society, and uh, and this chapter has really interesting stuff on Friedrich uh, Holder, Holderlin, uh, Hegel, Schiller. And uh, this generation is hugely important for how that myth of the mythless society is transmitted into future generations. Unfortunately, for for the sake of time, uh, we're going to have to jump to the next chapter, The Shadow of God. And this one traces the intertwining and parallel origins of religious studies and theosophy, and, uh, I was also really obsessed with Theosophy, um, as a child. Uh, I just remember reading tons of books on Madame Blavatsky. Uh, and so I, I mean, I was just astonished actually at the, the scope of, uh, the Theosophy Society. Um, I mean, uh, I think in 1928, there were over a thousand lodges, over 45,000 members, and yeah. they, uh, operated in over 40 countries. But this chapter isn't just about the Theosophy Society. It's, also about thinking about uh, that history and the history of religious studies together. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate why these stories, why these histories uh, should be read together, um, and, uh, and, and also if you could just elaborate more on why you think or how religious studies itself was not a disenchanter, as some of the more uh, common uh, narratives of your discipline uh, suggest.
0: Yeah. So there's like a standard story uh, in religious studies about its own origins that we we tell ourselves a story that's about how uh, religious studies as an academic discipline came to separate itself from particular, particularly Protestant theology and then to criticize it. And so usually uh, people either criticize religious studies for being basically Protestant in its presuppositions or they criticize religious studies for being kind of anti-religious. Like that's our sort of self-critique. But it turns out if you look at the cultural context of the founding figures of religious studies, and I'm talking about people like Friedrich Max Müller uh, and uh, 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 E.B. Tyler and, and company, uh, that's not the world that they're living in. They're not living in a mainstream Protestant world, nor are they trying to like kill off religion uh, as part of their project. Instead, uh, what's striking is that uh, that religious studies is born alongside theosophy, the Theosophical Society, as a as a kind of huge transnational new religious movement. And there's a lot of overlap between the early uh, who's who of religious studies and uh, and these kind of Western esoteric or uh, Theosophical movements. And you know, so we have Max Mueller, for example, who you know, the founder of the discipline, who calls at one time wanted to call religious studies theosophy as his title, and he articulates in a, in a series of lectures he gave very late in life his version of a kind of mystic Christian uh, Christianity as the core of what religious studies was supposed to be doing. Um, so, uh, in that respect, and and so. So in that respect, the project he's calling for uh, is is very different. And and the context, you have to understand that, uh, or people have to understand in in my field, that a lot of the people we've canonized had sort of odd views on religion. They became, they were pioneers in religious studies, uh, in part because of interesting and fresh things to say, and they were often parts of different kinds of let's uh, let 's say uh un, unusual different kinds of, uh, of religions themselves they were at the margins uh, uh, in in different respects and for Max Müller, he was drawn toward toward theosophy in a particular way and drawn toward a kind of what he saw as Hindu mysticism uh, as the core of, uh, of the project and also, you know, so I have that evidence from, from, from recollections of people after his death, as well as some of his published writings. Um, and then I also have, uh, in that chapter, I talk about E.B. Tyler, who's famous for founding the theory that animism is the origin of religion. Um, and what, what you discover is that, um, Uh, And and for him, animism is belief in spirits. And what's interesting is that he thinks of that as the origin of religion, but in his own day, spiritualism is huge, table turning and seances and what have you. And then as I I note in that chapter, uh, he actually went to spiritualist seances. So he was checking it out and he wasn't totally convinced one way or the other, but like his, the thing that he was describing is the most primitive was actually something he saw in his own social world. So uh, he then had to figure out how to fit that into his theories. Like, what do you do when elite British society is going to seances when he's come to understand belief in spirits as the defining feature of the primitive mind? And what I want to say is that he's— when he's talking about the primitive he's seeing his own society more than he is seeing uh this other world uh uh you know whether, whether he claims to be talking about mexico or what have you and it also turns out that he read a lot in uh, western esoteric materials himself so uh he a theory of magic and at uh, this part i buried in the footnotes because i was getting this chapter is getting too long but tyler himself read a lot of spell books he was reading western magical texts and using stuff from these Western magical traditions to theorize what he thought of as primitive magic. So there's a way in which this kind of uh, esoteric milieu functioned as a buffer between Europe and uh, Asia. So when European thinkers were constructing an imaginary Asia, they were often doing so through the intermediaries of people who were themselves magical practitioners in Europe claiming to recover Eastern thought. So theosophy was presenting itself as Buddhism, and some people took it at its word and thought that it had insights in Buddhism, especially early figures in the history of religious studies. And one of the points of that chapter is to show how the social worlds of uh, theosophy and re- early religious studies collapse. And I show theosophists, they, they knew each other. They went to some of the same social events and hung out with each other and exchanged letters and met each other. And I extract a particular French magician named Ali Faslevi, who was like the most important uh, person in the French occult revival. And I show he, how he's only, he like, you know, is only one social click away, uh, uh, from, from people like, uh, like, Mueller and how he was, uh, Eliphas Levi had a huge influence on both religious studies in a way, in a cryptic way and on theosophy and on, um, <coughs> magical traditions as well. And then I also recoup Madame Blavatsky and, uh, uh, Helena Blavatsky and the birth of the, of the Theosophical Society. And I just show, just in addition to sheer numbers in that society, a ton of influential early figures in religious studies happened to be members or were members of the Theosophical Society. Uh, and, and I provide a, a, a limited list of that, um, which I can't reconstruct from memory, but uh, you can look at it in the chapter in, in question. But, but it turns out that there's significant institutional overlap between the Theosophical Society and the, so the uh, S- Society for the Scientific Study of Religion uh, in that particular moment in the late 19th and early 20th century.
1: Great. Thank you. So uh, the next chapter, Chapter 5, called The Decline of Magic, J.G. Fraser, This chapter walks us through um, an often forgotten yet uh, extremely significant human science in the 19th century, folklore studies. You focus specifically on James Fraser, uh, who is a Scottish folklorist, who you argue is actually the first to formulate the classical disenchantment thesis. Um, Can you just briefly tell us who James Fraser was and uh, perhaps why he's so often forgotten?
0: Yeah so um so James George Fraser uh was born in 1854 uh and he lived until 1941 if i remember right and so he was, he's most famous for a text called The Golden Bough. And The Golden Bough is this weird, mad sort of exploration of a, uh, of a particular, um, ritual, basically pagan, uh, uh, uh Italian pagan ritual. Uh, and, uh, and he uses it to, he starts from there and does this vast comparative project. And it's a book, started as like one book, basically, and then expands to be like a huge multi-volume study that brings in just about everything in the world into this, uh, sort of narrative, sort of folkloric Traces uh, was the Transcendentalist so it merges classics and folklore studies to argue about the kind of persistence of pagan belief in uh, in Western Europe in its in, in in his period, and so so he builds this grand story into the Golden Bough, and it was a hugely uh, uh, read, widely cited work. Uh, we we no longer read it in religious studies, but um he was you know uh, but people like uh, Freud and Fraser. Uh, not, not just Fraser Freud and uh, Max Weber and uh, uh Wittgenstein all read the Golden Bough, and they really sort of bought into Fraser's description of uh, the uh, history and the nature of ritual and in the grand trajectory of modernity and The interesting thing is that it's in Fraser in one of the late editions of the Golden Bough, not the first edition, where he formulates an early version of a story that describes the evolution of human thought from magic to religion, to science. It's like a three-phase evolutionism. Uh, in the earlier German Romantic materials, I talk about, uh, I talk about the formulation of this phrase, uh, you know, uh, uh, the death of God, and I talk about the history of this phrase, uh, die entkautte Natur, the despiritualized nature, what have you. And those are really important, but none of them describe a kind of three-phase evolutionism that you find in Fraser. And admittedly, Frasier is adapting from the French sociologist Auguste Comte, but uh, Auguste Comte didn't have magic uh, as the starting point of... Uh, of uh, the, the grand trajectory of civilization. And so this, this phrase, so Fraser then gets read and picked up in all these different places. The golden Bough becomes this quite defining text in, uh, because people think of it as an insight into the primitive mind and into primitive beliefs and so-called magic and what have you. Um, yeah, so that's, so the, and, and so he was, you know, really influential on in his own day, but we basically don't read him anymore. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Great. Uh, and, uh, the final chapter in the first part of your book, uh, chapter six, called The Revival of Magic, Alistair Crowley. Uh, And I really, really love this chapter, uh, uh, mainly because Crowley, he's just such a perfectly strange person, uh, and he gets up to some uh, impressively strange antics, uh, you know, like uh, crucifying a frog or uh, performing uh, like trance rituals uh, on his honeymoon in Cairo. And uh, and yet he's also extremely significant to your story. And I just wanted to alert uh, listeners to this uh, this chapter and uh, what it contains because this is a, a magician who is really reading the human sciences. He's reading uh, people like Fraser, and he's somehow turning uh, the golden bow into a spell book, basically. And there's just so many interesting stories in this chapter. And I uh, I really encourage readers to to read it. Uh, And uh, let's move on to the second part of the book um, called the horrors of metaphysics. And the first chapter, uh, chapter seven is called the black tide mysticism, rationality and the German occult revival. Um, And here you walk us through. Uh, German post kantianism and uh, psychoanalysis, and you show their theoretical and practical entang- entanglements with the epoch's occult revival. And I particularly enjoyed the section on Freud, who... Uh, you know, upon first glance, doesn't doesn't fit your story, but um, you uh, show that he was indeed very much interested in the occult and the paranormal. Can you just briefly say something about uh, Freud's relationship to all of this?
0: Yeah. So, so first, to take a step back, in case the reader uh, or the listener um, might not, might have missed this. The the book as a whole, I'm trying to work systematically through the different human sciences. So I'm going through, so if you're wondering like why it sounds like it's jumping disciplines a lot, what I'm looking at is the moment in which each of these disciplines internalized the notion of modernity as rupture and modernity as rupture defined in terms of despiritualization or disenchantment. So, uh, but yeah, so this chapter, it's about, uh, it's about the birth of psychoanalysis um, and particularly po- sort of post-Kantian German philosophy. And I focus in uh, on the figure of Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud, like yeah, I mean people, you know, people probably know uh, if they've read your Freud that he criticizes primitive belief in in the omnipotence of thought, and he criticized, you know, primitive belief in in, in so-called in telepathy and described it as backward and what have you. And then the surprise is that um, Freud himself came to believe in the very things he associated with the primitive. So if you look at unpublished writings of his, if you look at letters and diaries, which which I do in this chapter. Uh, Freud himself actually like went to seances. He he performed at seances. He came to believe that there was something real, some kind of real occult knowledge, uh, and ultimately he can, came convinced of the reality of telepathy. So I mean, and so part of this this chapter is about how how that happened in Freud and how the normal account of the split between Freud and Jung turns out to be to be a Jung's myth, but a story that, that Jung told about Freud, but it doesn't historically fit the data. But it also it talks about also um, I'm interested in particularly how a kind of neo uh, neocontinism came to an, Form early psychoanalysis, uh, how notions of depth and psychological depth uh, were articulated. Uh, you know, uh, so once Kant articulates a certain kind of notion of the limits of reason, uh, people start to worry about exactly like, okay, what are those limits? What's below reason? What is the unconscious? What is the nature of of the thing itself? And I note that uh, that influential thinkers in that historical trajectory, though, and I'm thinking here particularly of of, of Arthur Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer is like Was hugely influential again in his own day uh, in in philosophy. He's one of the main influences on Nietzsche. He's an early influence on Freud. He's one of the early, he's an early Neo Kantian basically. Schopenhauer comes to believe in magic, and this is even in published works, which I'm surprised that people just haven't emphasized, but Schopenhauer literally advocates for the, the reality of magic and for animal magnetism. And he, and he associates it with, uh, with, with his famous concept of the will and and what have you. So, um, you have this, this notion, uh, uh, so I was interested in that chapter is how, uh, you have this interplay between, um, notions of the mind and whether modern, whether, uh, and, and even know st- stories about disenchantment uh, alongside the resurgence of belief in uh, various kinds of uh, occult uh, powers. Uh, and so, uh, and in that chapter, also, I look at historically the, the beginning of this German occult revival, which coincides and parallels in some respects the rise of neo-Kantianism. It just t- timing-wise it does. And so, um, and, and I even talk about Kant's own writings uh, on uh, uh, Swedenborg in, in a famous text. Uh, uh, Dreams of the Spirit Seer, um, uh, which which Kant in, on purpose had excluded from his uh, his corpus of uh, reissued writings. It was like the last work of his uh, of his pre-critical period, as he claimed. But it's an interesting engagement with with Swedenborg and uh, a kind of um, mysticism. So, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do is it's a it's a method that I'm doing in all in all the chapters. But I'm looking at in this case how. Freud and psychoanalysis starts to articulate this notion that, uh, that magical thinking is crazy thinking in the very moment when Freud is himself, uh, engaging in magical thinking and, and knows that many of his peers, uh, sophisticated, educated peers have similar kinds of beliefs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting, uh, and, and really surprising. And, uh, uh, the next chapter, chapter eight, uh, called Dialectic of Darkness, The Magical Foundations of Critical Theory, And here you try to sketch for us um, some of the more esoteric origins of the Frankfurt School. And in particular, you examine the neo-pagan philosopher uh, Ludwig Klages, who formulated uh, a critique of modernity uh, as domination of nature that was hugely influential for the Frankfurt School. And then you also walk us through some of Walter Benjamin's um, philosophy, And you persuasively argue that it's filled with magic, esotericism, mysticism, and a range of uh, enchantments. And uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could just share with listeners a a little bit more about um, these figures and the origins of the Frankfurt School.
0: So this is the, this was in one version of the book this was like the last chapter cuz I was like trying to work my way up to Adorno and Horkheimer and one of the things that that struck me at the very beginning of this project is that in Dialectic of Enlightenment Adorno and Horkheimer cite this pagan mystic named Ludwig Klages. That that was weird to me. Like I'm like why are they citing this guy who is famous for founding a group or being co-founder of a group called the Munich Cosmic Circle and who's like who had a whole you know he's a kind of a a philosophical pagan basically and then i started to read uh, clagius's writings and they uh and, and clagius has a kind of early ecological critique uh and even ecological feminism in his writings um and he's he's got an idea of a primordial matriarchy and he has a critique of modernity as uh stripping nature of its agency and a lot of things that we will think of as hallmarks of of critical theory, even some of the kind of critical theory that I use myself, uh, but to find articulated early and systematically, as early as like around 1910, in the writings of a neo-pagan mystic, that was like whoa, that was mind-blowing, and then and then I discovered that like Walter Benjamin was obsessed with Klagess, and he and he moved to Munich, Munich, hoping to study with Clagus, and he cites Clagus all over the place, and he, you know, he 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 was um they're in dialogue with each other, and he met with him a bunch of times, so like the link, you know, between the two was you know really tight, and then once you start looking at Walter Benjamin's work with this kind of eye, when you're looking, you start to think, okay. Um, you know, oh, he, he must have known something about the occult world, then what you see is like, Benjamin is referencing to auras and uh, constellations and and uh, and what have you, and um, erotic rush and stuff like that. These are all concepts that, and, and angels, all these are, are things that are happening and being discussed in the western esoteric milieu in the moment that Benjamin is coming to his most famous theories. And so you can see kind of uh, Benjamin's notion of the aura as in dialogue with not just Calagas, but a whole kind of moment of, of Western esotericism. And so the, the other piece that I want to, uh, I, I, I do in this chapter too, is, you know, provide, you know, sort of in that respect, the background of Adorno and Horkheimer's dialectic of enlightenment. And then I also show that like a certain narrative, uh, in critical theory that we keep repeating, you know, doesn't go back to the people we think, uh, authored it. It was authored first by this sort of problematic neopagan pagan mystic. And I say problematic because Clogus turns out to have a lot of features that I, that I think are admirable. And he says some really fascinating things about the environment or what have you. But he turns out to have also been a, a rabid anti-Semite. And that's, I mean, especially at, at a couple of points, it seems to be a, in some respects a, a metaphorical anti-Semitism, but it doesn't, he doesn't tone it down when real Jews lives are at stake. And for me personally, you know, that, that uh, I, I had a quite certain negative reaction to that, but I wanted to, but I, but, but I, but I want to say, you know, um that, that then, you know, you can't, it, it, You can't deny that that's part of Calagas, but he also but that doesn't mean you should, uh, you know, throw all out everything he says based on some kind of reductive fallacy. Um, And the interesting thing to me is and I don't articulate it very much in this particular chapter, but that there is a turns out to be a left wing anti-Semitism in the period, which I which I didn't know about until kind of doing this research. But, you know, like there's a critique of of. Uh, of the, of the, of the Jews, it looks like a critique of 1%. It's a critique of capitalism. It's a critique of rootlessness. It's a critique of, uh, of the idea that like, you know, uh, like that a certain kind of banking conglomeration is controlling all of modernity, uh, which is then racialized in these really, uh, problematic and, and, and screwed up ways. So, uh, and it was surprising to me to see that. And then people obviously like Walter Benjamin, who, who who were themselves Jewish and try and have to grapple with that. And then what he does is obviously strip out the anti-Semitism and even the paganism out from Calagus And then, you know, does his own stuff. And I, and I, uh, I really like Walter Benjamin and I, I teach him and I, I mean, I, you know, I identify with those, uh, Frankfurt school figures, him and him and Adorno. So, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So then to see those roots, um, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's fascinating. and, And I think, the, the piece I want to often say when I, when I teach, uh, when I've talked out this piece a bunch is that people assume that the occult is right wing and what, uh, you know, like they think occult Nazis, like that's a widespread trope, but it turns out you can find occult police on both sides of the aisle. So you can find left wing occultists in, who are resisting the Nazis and the Nazis shut down certain kinds of occultism, even as there were Nazi occultists who were themselves promoting other kinds of occultism. So it's not as binary as one or the other. Um, And so occultism is running around the period in in Britain, in in Germany and uh, in France. And you have anti-Semitism, unfortunately, in the period and uh, running around in all three of those countries, too. And so, um, yeah, and sometimes those co-occur and sometimes those don't.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Great. Um, So uh, the next chapter, chapter nine, called The Ghosts of Metaphysics, Logical Positivism and Disenchantment. This was something that I was waiting for ever since I read in the intro uh, where you write uh, the Vienna school philosophers seem to be the worst candidates for closet magicians, and indeed they they really do appear you know again on first glance uh to be uh almost antithetical to um to your argument, but you show through their their writings their uh you know their their letters their uh, personal biographies that uh they, they indeed belong to your argument uh, and that uh, um, some of them were really obsessed with the paranormal uh, from a variety of different angles. And so I was just, I was wondering if you could situate the Vienna school in its esoteric milieu and yeah, maybe tell us about um, Hans Hans uh, interest in the paranormal or Carnap's interest in the paranormal. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, so I came to this chapter like, um, uh, so, I, I don't know how, how you're trained, but when, when I was, you know, I spent a lot of my formative years going to these trendy lectures in Paris by whoever, whatever philosopher was trending. And often they would attack positivists. That that would be, you wouldn't exactly know who the positivists were, but you got a vague sense that like the bad guys were positivists. And when I started reading German critical theory, you, you see that really even more amplified. So, Adorno and Horkheimer, again, they like attack, they, they're more specific about it being, in a way, the Vienna circle of logical positivism that they're attacking. But, you know, I'll, I'll, they're also attacking positivism. And so what the surprise, so I thought, and, and often a, a lot of the critique of positivism is that it's supposed to be like the crystallization of disenchantment. It's like stripping the world of all kind of meaning and poetry and making everything into kind of materialism or what have you. And then the surprise is if you look at the, at the lives of these significant positivists, uh, both lesser known positivists like, uh, Otto Neurath and, 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 more famous people, uh, like, uh, Hans, Hans and, and Rudolf Karnap, you can see, like, an engagement with the paranormal. Uh, is even calling positivism magic, and he's talking about it as a magical way of thinking. I mean, so, I mean, it doesn't fit the received picture at all. I mean, in Carnap, there's this really telling moment, and I, I don't have a lot of time, so I'll go quick. Um, there's a really telling moment there uh, when you look at the archive. Uh, if you look at interviews around, you know, Rudolf Carnap and Wittgenstein have this famous split. Uh, in a way, it's like it's supposed to be the thing that... Um, causes Wittgenstein to then become like the late Wittgenstein. He Like the one story is that Wittgenstein turns in against his own previous thinking after seeing how Carnap and company are abusing it or whatever. But if you look at uh, accounts of that split, both by Carnap himself uh, and then in, uh, uh, interviews and, and, and other uh, uh, writings, what happens, uh, the, the turning moment is that like basically Wittgenstein sees on Carnap's bookshelves all these books about uh, the paranormal and, and psychical research and 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 wittgenstein is like what why are you know why are you reading this psychical research or whatever and he's like but and so so he wants to dismiss it, but Carnap is like really interested in the possibility of the existence of spirits. Uh, even if he's probably more inclined to disenchant than enchant them, he's fascinated, he's drawn to it, he's drawn to seances, etc. And in the same moment that Wittgenstein dismisses Carnap for, for potentially believing in the existence of spirits, Carnap is going to dismiss Wittgenstein because Wittgenstein's interested in mysticism. So, uh, and Wittgenstein explicitly refers to his stuff as mystic. So uh, it's this weird, it's this interesting moment. It's an example of one of the things that I observe in the book, which is that people who believe different kinds of paranormal belief often are very critical of each other. So part of the way that you get these partial kinds of disenchantments functioning in different discursive domains is that like, you know, the people who believe in the reality of demonic possession and the people who believe in psychic powers each think that the other is silly often, you know? So you get the, the, you know, like the the people who believe in demonic possession think that the psychic power stuff is actually caused by the devil or the people who believe in psychic powers believe that the people who believe in demonic possession are, are really describing some kind of invisible force or spirits or what have you. And so they kind of, Cross uh, cancel each other out in, in a very interesting way, and so it was interesting to me to be able to see that in and among the world of uh, of the positivists. Uh, um, and again, you know, uh, I, I kind of got a, a reappraisal of them. I, I kind of found them much more interesting than I thought they were going to be when I did that chapter. I, I even it was almost on a dare that chapter because a buddy of mine. Thought that also that they were the least likely people to have had any of those kind of beliefs, and then you know I went to looking at uh, diaries and letters and stuff, and it just all this stuff came came out. So it's a fun chapter to write, and gave me more reading about analytic philosophy than I had done before.
1: I think that's good. So we are running out of time. So I'm just going to just sort of like alert to listeners what goes on in the, the final chapter, um, which is called the world of enchantment, or Max Weber at the end of history. Um, so in this chapter, you know, you come to the person who is probably most famously associated with disenchantment and the disenchantment thesis. You go through a lot of his writings, a lot of his private writings, uh, letters, and you come up with some some really interesting arguments and points. One fascinating thing that, that really uh, uh, shocked me was that um, you, you argued that, that Weber might have come to the concept of disenchantment or what you call disenchanting after spending some time at a Swiss neo-pagan commune. Um, so I will leave to listeners to, to find out more in that chapter. And I just wanted to quickly jump to the conclusion and, uh, and and just sort of ask you a really broad question, but obviously we have time constraints. Why are the human sciences so critical to the history of myth, magic and modernity?
0: So, I mean, so what I'm interested in and what one of the things that originally inspired this project is I'm trying to figure out, I'm grappling with, let's call our postmodern moment. And one of the things that I was interested in was how we got the story that modernity meant a kind of rupture that the, the like there's a moment where, you know, like that the things are very different between pre-modernity and modernity, or uh, even if you're going to later add a postmodern period at the end of it, there's this idea of modernity is this kind of break. And the place that I see that being most systematically articulated uh, was in the human sciences. And this is, of course, a category I'm getting um, from the, the German, but basically like the the humanities and social sciences together. That's where you start to get this narrative uh, that defines modernity and often European modernity in particular as this break. And I'm I was skeptical of it. In part, I'm trying to work through in past postmodernism. And so uh, one of the things I was interested in was was all these various accounts of uh, of modernity as rupture. And that, that those are the disciplines that it, that it gets done in. And I don't even get to like I'm not I don't even get to complete uh, the project in a way. In that like I could have kept writing an even longer book. Like I look at not just uh, Germany and France. I had a chapter on uh, the birth of uh, academic philosophy departments in America and how they're connected to Monist leagues, uh, but wow. I had to that. I have a long chapter on the birth of sociology in France uh, and Auguste Comte and his own connection to spiritualism and fetishism, so-called. Uh, he defines the term and then comes to sort of fall into his own conceptual horizon. So, I mean, there's a lot of work that could be done there, and, and it basically part of it is an attempt to excavate the actual cultural history of the 19th and 20th century, and tell it in a new way. Uh, If you look back at the past without assuming that the central feature of modernity being disenchantment uh, or or secularization, you start to see all these other things that you didn't notice before. And not only, you know, we can find it, you know, in in the writings of, we can find writings of mystics or new age figures or theosophists or spirituals, but then to find it in the writings of the scholars themselves or in the social worlds of scholars themselves was for me really exciting uh, and important as a way to kind of undo a particular story about modernity.
1: Great. That's a perfect way to end. Really quickly, uh, what are you working on right now?
0: So originally I conceived of this as part of a two-part project called The Past and Futures of the Human Sciences. But then I discovered that the past part wasn't uh, what I wanted to tell about history, wasn't what I wanted to tell about the future. Uh, I'm, you know, The next project isn't particularly on Western esotericism. Uh, the book I'm, I'm working on now, uh, and it's out for, for peer review uh, as we speak, so knock on wood, uh, is called uh, Absolute Disruption, uh, The Future of Theory After Postmodernism. And it's attempt to figure out Um, How to formulate a kind of uh, new social science, let's say a post-Coonian social science in the wake of or after the collapse of post-structuralism. I'm I'm really it's really about like uh, how to do what kind of methodologies we might pursue, having disintegrated a bunch of master categories and having come. You know, like I, I was someone who, uh, you know, got Derrida in, in college, and you know, I, 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 you know, so for us, the the things that were themselves counter-hegemonic, the critiques of the mainstream categories like Derrida and Foucault, et cetera, were taught as the dominant thing. And so, what I want to know is, how do we move beyond them in a way that's not a reversal? I'm not trying to retreat to a discredited modernism, but actually trying to move through or move past uh, post-structuralism or post-modernism by turning it inside out. Uh, So it's a methodological work. It's, it's more philosophical. This book was basically me taking Foucault's techniques and using them on Adorno and Horkheimer. And now what I want to do is kind of undo my own methodological structures and then try and do something that's not a deconstructive project, but actually a constructive project. Uh, So that's what I'm doing in in the next work. So hopefully uh, it's called absolute disruption and you can find some more information about it probably uh, online. Um, but anyway, Great. yeah, that's what I'm Great. working on
1: now. Uh, well, thank you so much. I, I look forward to uh, seeing your new book and uh, yeah. take care.
0: Thank you. Pleasure yeah. chatting.